Welcome to Better Than I Found It. I'm Mike McGraw, the men's golf coach at Baylor. Today, I'll be catching up with former Titleist Player Promotions representative Jim Ahern. For right at 35 years, Jim defined and then redefined his role with the company. He was a virtual pioneer in this profession. You'll learn today some very interesting history in his profession and also with the NCAA Golf Championship that he attended so many times. He and I also touch on a sense of entitlement that is prevalent in the world of junior golf, amateur golf, and college golf, both players and coaches, so this is not just players. He also lets us know what he's up to in his retirement. Really enjoyed this podcast today. Please welcome my very dear friend, Jim Ahern. My guest today on Better Than I Founded podcast is Jim Ahern. Jim Ahern, longtime accushionate company representative. And Jim, I've been wanting to catch up with you for about six months since you left College Golf World. And, and I know a lot of other people have been. So I'm excited to have you here today. Well, Mike, it's, uh, it's good to uh, have this chat with you. Uh, uh, I'd be lying to say that I don't miss you and all the other coaches and parents and uh, officials, NCAA, USGA. So it's just great to catch up. It has been six months, uh, but it, it feels like it's been longer. So let's get after it. Absolutely. Well, you know, uh, Jim, a lot of people know who you are. And so for some of those that don't uh, really know your background, let's let's talk a little bit about how you got to the accushionate company and and how, you know, we're going to talk about your place in the in the golf industry as we go through, but just kind of how did you get to a cushion to begin with? Well, uh, I was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, played, you know, junior and amateur golf throughout Northern California, um, attended junior college, the College of San Mateo for two years uh, before transferring down to San Diego State. I transferred down in uh, January of 1974, and at that time, San Diego State hosted the NCAA Championships at Carlton Oaks. And ironically, given where I ended up landing vocationally, this was my first exposure to uh, Division One, uh, the NCAA Division One National Championships, and um, my first encounter with the likes of Dave Williams. Jesse Haddock, Mike Holder, and Carl Tucker. So it, it, there, there must have been good karma in, in all that. Um, I was unfortunately not able to further my golf career due to a left injury, so I focused on my education. I also started working at a golf course and got in the PGA Apprentice Program, um, spent six and a half years as a golf professional in San Diego, um, two and a half of the, two and a half of those years was was spent at uh, La Costa Country Club and Spa, where I worked for Tommy Jacobs, and where I earned my junior A status with the PGA of America. Uh, during that six and a half years, about the last year and a half, I was elected to the board of directors of the San Diego chapter, the Southern California section. Um, in July of 1981. Uh, I started my career with Titleist at the uh, club plant in Escondido, uh, California. About six months later, I got transferred to the East Coast, but had to interview with Walla Uline before making the move back east. And during the interview process, Walla asked me what my vocational career goal was. And I told him, I says, I wanted to be president of Titleist. <laughs> Little, no, little did I know at that point in time, I was talking to the guy that was the future president, uh, chairman, and CEO the of Titan. Perfect, perfect de definition of irony, right there, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes, it, it was. Um, but um, once I got back to the East Coast, uh, my initial responsibilities were as an inside sales rep and home pro staff coordinator, which I over took care of all the order administration for all of our staff members, personal use orders. Um, did that for about three, three plus years. And in 1984, Wally had been starting to groom me to uh, take over the Titleist's college and amateur promotions. 
And what few people know was that Joe Ternessa, Wally Uline, Gary Hart from Ping, and Joe Phillips from Wilson were the founders of what we know the industry's college promotional uh, efforts we know today. And they had the foresight to see the benefits of getting aligning themselves with the top college programs in the country because they were pushing players to the PGA Tour. And this all took place in the late 70s and early 80s. And at the 1984 National Championships at Bear Creek Golf World in Houston, uh, Wally passed the baton to me to take over uh, the administration of our college and amateur programs at that point in time. I was still <clears throat> had responsibilities internally uh, with the Home Pro Staff program, and it wasn't until 1989 that I really was 24/7 all in on the college and, and amateur promotions as I went into the player promotion department uh, full time. During that run up to 1990, Wally was a great mentor and allowed me to grow in the position and and put my own fingerprints on the position. But he made uh, a couple of things very clear. He had three objectives or goals. One was to protect the ball count. Two was to identify the feeder systems to the PGA Tour. And three, to identify and develop relationships with the rising stars of the next generation. And one of the ways I was able to do this was I developed a a ranking system for the company that allowed me to track and identify uh, the rising stars in junior golf, college golf, slash amateur golf, and also the mini tours. Uh, Those were really, at that point in time, the three main feeder systems to the PGA Tour. So the game has been growing for years and years and years, and identifying the next generation, the rising stars uh, of the next generation, really took a global approach. And that, that was part and parcel to the number of international players that were coming to the U.S. to play not only college golf, but junior golf and amateur golf. Subsequently, I started traveling more. Um, My travels included, obviously, major junior, amateur, and college events, evaluating players and and taking equipment counts, but it also expanded overseas where I would go where the, the world gathered to key international amateur tournaments, the British amateur, the European amateur, the European boys team championships, uh, the Australian team championships, uh, the Australian amateur, New Zealand amateur, the world amateurs in very various parts of the world. You know, I mean, looking back, I, I traveled to 23 countries, which in an, I would have never thought I'd, I'd travel to in my lifetime. But I met a lot of great people and um, just had a lot of great experiences. But along the way, um, I found myself looking over my shoulders, be it domestically, I'd see coaches showing up at the same junior golf tournaments uh, I was at. I saw agents at the same college and amateur tournaments that I was at. And uh, as Wally said, uh, it was no, no secret that they were paying attention to what we, Titleist, was doing as it was identifying the rising stars of the next generation. Uh, Those coaches that followed my lead and um, traveled to international tournaments, um, it it was, (laughs) I look back and it was kind of funny. My first trip overseas to the European Boys Team Championship was to Helsinki, Finland, and three coaches were there with me. Eric Hoos, who was the then golf coach at Denver, Fred Warren at East Tennessee State, Randy Lyon, and myself. And then the last European Boys Team Championship I attended was in Sweden, and there was 25-plus coaches there. And that was the year uh, John Rahm had his breakout moment and, and got on the radar of a lot of college coaches. And 
John's true character uh, came out uh, that week because the tournament format had you do 36 holes of, of qualifying so that you could put the teams in either the championship flight or the second or third flight. And John was low qualifier. He signed his scorecard going to the practice tee or, or just getting his golf clubs, looked in his golf bag and realized he had 15 clubs in his bag and reported it to the scoring area and was disqualified. But fortunately enough, it did not hurt Spain from playing in the championship flight. So just want a little sound bites of the travels overseas. But, um, you know, the, the position evolved over the years. Uh, part and parcel to uh, the growth of the game, the number of international players, and it made it made the the identification uh, of the rising stars a little bit more complicated. But the ranking system that I had developed for the company would, was really um, allowing me to know where to target my travel efforts and our resources, being you know the product support. And this is before Mac Fair brought on the Junior Golf Scoreboard, and Golf Week had their rankings. And I'm not, and and the scratch players really wasn't touching Junior Golf. Um, but I had that; we used it effectively, and and it, and it really helped me. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, one of the secrets to my longevity in the job, which was you know, 30 plus years was that I continued to reinvent myself on a regular basis. And as the the landscape changed, I couldn't do the job if I wasn't open to change, wasn't open to be flexible in what I did and how I did. And it, it that was really the, the secret to the longevity over the years, especially as we got into the, you know, um, post 2010, uh, when uh, the competitive activity really started ramping up. And then once uh, Taylor May took over the national sponsorship of the, of the AJGA. But that's kind of the uh, cliff notes of where I came from, how I got there. And that, that's certainly a history that really hasn't ever been told. Honestly, it hasn't. And it, it gives everybody just a little bit better idea of coming from basically nothing to all of a sudden now you've got every major manufacturer chasing junior golf tournaments, amateur golf tournaments, college golf tournaments all around the world just to try to identify players then that they would sponsor and or have play their equipment as professionals. But that brings up something I really want to talk to you about that I think is really a part of our world and, and, probably touches on human nature about as much as anything. And that is entitlement because while you were identifying these players, you also were trying to attract them to play the Titleist golf ball and a cushion of clubs, Titleist clubs. So with that comes a, a sense of entitlement for junior golfers, college golfers and college coaches, if you will. So let's, let's kind of delve into that because I think it's a very real thing. No, there's no doubt. And let's, let's, put a little bit of a timeline to this, if if you will. Uh, as we all know, the, the rules on the amateur status changed and the USGA and RNA in 2002 implemented changes to the rules of amateur status where it was okay for amateurs uh, to receive free equipment from a manufacturer provided the amateur did not participate in any advertising or promotion of those products for the company. And, you know, from my, our perspective, um, we were kind of going into uh, an unknown world. You know, um, if I can use a recruiting analogy, what was it, July 1st, during the er early years of recruiting, you could start making contact with, with juniors. Yes, and you could have three off-campus contacts and you could start phone calls once a week at that time. Yeah, well, I'm sitting there thinking, okay. I'm going to get a phone call or a text at 12.01. Can I get free equipment? <laughs> that didn't happen. That didn't happen. It, it, it was really a slow rollout of, of, of this whole thing. It, you know, but one of the things that, that disappointed me is that the USGA and RNA uh, 
had no limits on the amount of equipment an amateur could receive. And they told us, we're going to leave that up to the manufacturer. But as we know, uh, this was a game changer for parents, kids, college coaches, as their sense of entitlement slowly uh, began to change and develop. You know, I don't think any manufacturer at that point in time knew what to expect. Um, and from my perspective, there were two schools of thought by manufacturers. And they either took a rifle shot approach to this this change in amateur status and provided product support on a performance-based basis, or it was a carpet bombing approach where anyone who asked could receive product. I know which bucket I fell in. I knew which bucket Ping fell in. I didn't know what buckets some of the other manufacturers fell into. But at the end of the day, as here we are at 2020 and looking at what's taken place over the years, the sense of entitlement is very concerning to me because the focus is not on playing the game. It's shifted to how much free product I can receive or how much free product my child can receive or how much free product as I, as a college golf coach can receive from a manufacturer. And it's not about putting your child or your team in a position to play their best golf. It's about, it's, 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 it's about the product and how much uh, they can get in a, in a college coach's case, defer that, that equipment expense. And, and I just, uh, I'm old school and I, I just, I've always had a hard time. I've just wrestled with it over, over the years, but at the end of the day, as you know, that, you know, we have a business to run. You guys have a business to run. You have budgets, but we just can't, we've never tried to be everything, everybody. So we had to, yes, manage the expectations of parent, child, college golfer, or college coach. And one of the challenges you have in doing so is that you find yourself having to say no to someone and trying to put a positive spin on it. And that's where we felt as a company, and I still do to this day, that the fairest way to go about the distribution of the product that you have available to you is on a performance-based basis. And therefore, at the end of the day, you could look a parent and child in the eye and tell them, it says, look, uh, it's a performance-based product support system and your child needs to get to here. And if he gets to here, um, the opportunity will present itself. We'll go through some more uh, further discussions as to what our expectations are of you and your child. Um, and if you're comfortable with those sort of expectations, we can move forward. I know I went to bed at night sleeping very comfortably having that conversation with a parent or a coach or a child, uh, knowing that if he goes and talks to his best friend and everything else, those people have heard the same conversation. So I was not, we were not flying by the seat of of our pants and all this. Well, you know, Um, it's it's funny that you should say that. I remember we had a young player when I was at Oklahoma State who was a really good junior player and he came into college So he got a lot of equipment and balls and everything in college and junior golf. And then in college, because he was at Oklahoma State, he got some of that, too. And he he came to me after he graduated and said, hey, I'm having a little trouble getting uh, balls and gloves. Uh, Can you help me out with that? And I said, well, uh, I think the company, you know, will give you balls and gloves as you perform better. That's what's going to happen. I can't just make a phone call to get you balls and gloves as a professional. And he was kind of shocked by that. And that was the first time I had seen true entitlement because he felt like, well, I, I always got them before. Surely I get them now. And that, that was kind of a shocker uh, to me. And then I saw it more and more. But I also saw, uh, I also look for when I hand out something to a player, I love it when he looks me straight in the eye and says, thanks, coach. I appreciate that. Because then, you know, he still appreciates it, even though I'm giving him something that he was going to get anyway but he's thankful for it. So 
I, I want to work back away from entitlement. Well, I think we all would. And, and I, I hate to say it, but thank you is not in the dictionary or vocabulary of many young golfers right now. They, they, they expect, you know, uh, they expect free equipment. And if, if Titleist didn't give it to them, then they're going to go to another manufacturer and, and, and request it from them. And they may even go to another manufacturer and request product from them and compare notes and, and play whatever the equipment they, they want. I, I, uh, correct me if I'm wrong in, in my assessment of this entitlement issue is there's no accountability on the players or parents or coaches part as to what equipment's in, in play and our, myself or Titleist and other manufacturers find ourselves uh, sending equipment in and we never hear anything um, back from the player or or the uh, coach as to why or why it is not in play. I think part of the onus falls on on us as manufacturers, uh, but it also falls on you know in the hands of the player and and coach and even even parents that you know human nature will tell you that they they want to avoid con conflict and the last thing that they want to you've seen it. <laughs> That you know, we provide or a player is providing equipment to a manufacturer, and he's not playing it, and he runs into the manufacturer at a at a college golf tournament, an amateur amateur golf tournament, and he beelines it and starts walking away from the manufacturer. That has to change, in 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 my mind. You know, you can text, you can email a manufacturer and let them know what's going on with the equipment and it makes that one-on-one personal uh, encounter a lot easier versus not saying anything at all. But, you know, I, I heard before I retired, I heard a scenario where there were junior golfers that were getting upset that they are getting pressure to play certain equipment from one, one of the leading golf manufacturers. And, and, and they weren't asking for it but they were getting pressure to um, to put the equipment in play, and that's not what this whole thing should be about. But it's, it's honestly, concerning. this whole thing should be about each player playing their best golf. That's what it should be about. Yeah, I, it, it's exactly right. It's 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 playing the playing the game and 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 the and and, and the player or individual or even team playing their best golf is not the first priority. It's it's gimme gimme gimme. What can I get for free? And Lord knows what, where some of this equipment ends up. You know, I, I I like to think that players have enough integrity that they're not selling some of this equipment on the internet. You know, that <clears throat> that would be very concerning to me. So well, I think that uh, as you said, human nature a minute ago. I think human nature is to get as much as you can for yourself. And so I don't know where you draw the line or what the answer is, but I, I do know that um, that all of us should seek out being the best we can be at whatever we're doing. And it doesn't I'm not going to be the best just because I have the most drivers or I'm not going to be the best because I've got more great looking putters than you do. I'm going to be the best because I shoot a lower score. So if people get back to that and if you play well, there's there's manufacturers standing in line to give you their equipment and pay you and they want you using their product if you play well enough. I'd rather play well than just get a bunch of good stuff. No, but I completely agree. At the end of the day, one of the best comments I ever heard was when I made a visit out to the PGA Tour and one of the better players at that time, I can't remember who it was, but he made um, he, he was talking about all the equipment play, uh, trailers out there <clears throat> on tour week in and week out. And it says the best players figure out what works for them and they don't make a lot of change. And that still holds true today. Look at, look at what, uh, what equipment Brooks Kopka is playing. He's not being paid by anybody. He's playing the, the driver and the irons and the ball that he wants to play. And uh, I think you know, you may see more of that 
out on tour um, uh, in the future. It, it may be wishful thinking from in, in some people's minds, but most of the money you're going to win out on tour is on the golf course, not off the golf course. Well, let's hope that one day that gets turned back around. Um, it's too bad it didn't get changed before you finished your career in that, but it, it is part of the life. Well, it's part of that world. Well, some people accuse me of trying to cure cancer by, by changing that mindset. But over time, I think people will begin to, to realize the downside of, of just taking more and more and more equipment. It's, it's not healthy for the game. Uh, and it's not healthy for the future players coming up through the game because it's 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 painting a, a, a an unrealistic picture of of what they have to look forward to going as as they move up the competitive ladder of golf. Exactly, so. exactly. I agree. Well, speaking of wanting to change things, or uh, the fact is, you were a fixture in college and amateur and junior golf for well over 30 years. And everybody knew you when they saw you uh, and wanted to go shake your hand, say hello. So we missed that part. But what I want to do right now is just ask you, let's talk about some of the main changes you saw in college golf during your time. Uh, I've, I've been in it for about 25 years and I've seen quite a few changes. So give me two or three of the most influential or important changes you've seen in the game. Well, I don't know that I could I could hold it to two or three. Uh, I'll start by saying uh, the quality of the players over the years has is has improved dramatically, part and parcel to more playing opportunities uh, kids have in junior golf. And second, uh, the influx of international players in the in the both the men's and women's game in college golf has been significant. Subsequently, there's more parity. Uh, among the D1 teams, you know, back in 1974, there may have been 10 prominent teams in college golf. Now I can, I can, uh, I, I could go so far as say that there's 30 or 40 prominent D1 teams uh, in college right now. Um, regional championships were introduced, which was now the qualifier for the NCAA championships. I laugh a little bit because uh, that's where I always saw coaches have out-of-body experiences because the tension got so high. I tell um, you what, you know, uh, professional golfers hate tour school. They just hate it. It's a terrible week. You know, you can only there's only two outcomes, and one of them's really bad. And uh, I I felt a little bit like that at regionals. I, I wasn't a fan back in the days when yeah. I was under a little more pressure. Yeah, and then you had to move. <clears throat> the move to match play in 2009, which was a significant change. And, you know, that prompted was due part and parcel to bring TV into the, into the college environment. T, I mean, the golf channel has brought more attention to the college game and the individuals. Um, Steve Barkowski and, and company have done a fabulous job. They're, they're doing more and it, it only helps college golf. The other thing that probably doesn't come to mind uh, for many is just the changing of the guard in, in the coaching community. You know, the likes of, you know, Mike Holder is now retired, but, you know, uh, Jesse Haddock is gone. Dave Williams is gone. Carl uh, Tucker is, is, is gone. And, and a lot of the, the veteran coaches that used to be part of the game, uh, um, Jay Hardwick, Bill Brogdon, um, Fred Warren, you know, they've retired and now you've got a whole new breed of college coaches, many of which played college golf themselves. Mm -hmm. And they're bringing a lot to the game and to how coaches coach up their players, which I, I, I that's where I, I see a, a big change that you guys, you know, you're walking you know, maybe nine holes with a player during a tournament and peel back and work with somebody else, but you're helping them uh, learn how to manage uh, themselves around a golf course and making good decisions. You know, college golf recruiting has changed. Now you have two coaches out there recruiting and you have two coaches uh, coaching at events, all positive 
uh, for the game. And uh, two things more recently, um, you had the the uh, the advent of of this year PGA University, where you know I have to applaud the PGA Tour and those coaches who were involved in in um, making this program happen. It now gives a, a defined pathway for the elite college players to get on Corn Ferry or Latin America or or the McKenzie Tour. You didn't have that back in the 80s or 90s. Um, just very, very positive. And, and then you have, you know, you've got a challenge uh, ahead of you, which is navigating the name likeness um, and image uh, proposals that are uh, in front of the NCAA and in front of a lot of, of the state's legislatures. So that's, that's, that's a whole new kettle of fish from, from where I sit. Um, but at the end of the day, College golf has changed in another way. Uh, we lost a number of years ago the one individual that was the first champion of college golf, and that was Ron Balicki. I'm so and, glad you brought up Ron's name. I think as time goes by, this new generation of coaches probably knew him as a when they were players, but there's going to be a generation come along before they had no contact with Ron, and that's sad. He was a great, great man. Oh, he he was. I, I we we would talk numerous times throughout the years, and he would run things by me, and we would he would pick my brain on who I thought the preseason All Americans were, who I thought the you know uh, all you know uh, season ending All Americans were. Same thing with teams and and whatnot. But he had a wealth of knowledge that is is unparalleled was unparalleled to. To anyone at the time, he really did the deepest of dives in the college golf, and knew had a lot of sound bites on, on people and teams and everything that you know weren't shared. And and if you sat down and had a beer with him and put your feet up, the conversations that were had with him were remarkable, fruitful, and and just a lot of fun. And uh, um, college golf. Uh, it, Hats off to the GCAA for for um, inducting him into into their Hall of Fame. Uh, he but he he really was uh, the first and, and only one that that championed college golf in in its early years and was really respo- really responsible for where college golf is today. The cover of Golf Week magazine, you know, you had an NCAA champion. Every year, you he, he did more f- great feature stories on college and amateur golfers than anybody has before or since. So yeah, I agree with you. Ron really moved the game forward, the college game forward, and and is responsible for a lot of the success we see today. Yeah, and and I, hats off to Steve Barkowski at the Golf Channel. He's really picked up the the lead here the last five seven years and and the golf channel is is doing a fabulous job and um but uh, ron's ron's truly missed by a lot of people so yeah let, let's uh that i agree completely um and ron uh, lived long enough to see i think five ncaa championships at match play uh so let's talk a little bit about match play a lot a lot of people uh there's uh two schools of thought on this one people that didn't like it at all. And then others that believe that one day we would be on television. And I think the excitement and the head to head nature that match play provides has really, really brought attention to our game. Oh, there's no question at the, at the beginning, I I wasn't really sold on match play for one reason, one reason only match play does not necessarily uh, identify the best team or the best player, be it a match play, the, the U S amateur. And, and two, um, I think it diminished the individual championship. And, and because the, the, some of the leaders on the individual side of things, when you were, uh, were not finishing, uh, on the same side as those teams competing for spots in the match play. And, I know at Inverness, 
at the Honors Golf Course. I'm trying to think. Uh, it's Stillwater in 2000. Was it 10 or 11 when John Pe- uh, John Peterson, John Peterson, uh, Matt Hill, and Scott Langley all won the individual title by finishing on the opposite side as the leaders. And I, I just, I didn't think that was fair. But at the end of the day, you know, the focus was on the team championship, the match play format gave more teams an opportunity to compete for a national championship and, and brought TV into the uh, households of a, of a lot more of people that couldn't be there. And, uh, help grow the game, and uh, I, I can't argue with it. Now, it's it's there's been a lot of excitement. I don't think the school you don't have that. And correct me if I'm wrong. I just haven't felt that you've got that school versus school raw raw element that they were looking for. It hasn't gotten to that point yet, where you have three four hundred people course when the ncaa championships was played at oklahoma state i mean there was four or five thousand people out there when oklahoma state was playing at augusta state in the semifinals you, you don't you don't have that parent family community support at some of the other venues uh, where you would you might have the last year texas versus stanford in 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 the finals you know obviously having the tournament in, in in Arkansas, probably prohibited people from Stanford getting there to to support the the, the school. And, and if there was, uh, I always got the impression that uh, the mindset was that you'll have hundreds of people from each school attending uh, at the finals, supporting their school, and you'd you'd hear the roar of the crowd and and go from there. Uh, that's the only thing that I think is missing at this point in time. Right. Well, I think that those, those people that would be screaming and yelling in the gallery are definitely watching it on television though. So that's great. I love the fact that we are on TV, the golf channel, as you said, Steve Burkowski and the whole staff has just done an amazing job of making the championship very, very uh, visible and important. And uh, I know I watch it even when we're not there at match play, I'm watching it. So it's great. On that note, um, of the 11 or so NCAA championships at match play that you've seen, what are some of the highlights? I mean, you've got some that probably stand out. <laughs> well, <clears throat> if I were to answer the question, which NCAA championships were, were my favorites. Um, I go back into the eighties and uh, start with the 1988 uh, NCAA championship at North ranch where UCLA defeated Oklahoma State, OU, and UTEP. And my biggest takeaway there was the fact that Cricket Mush was the coach at UTEP, and they were only playing with four guys. Yeah. And they still finished tied for second. I, I thought <laughs> I, I, that that was one that I uh, will always remember. The In the 90s, uh, the 1995 NCAAs at Ohio State, where uh, Oki State beat Stanford uh, in a playoff, and uh, correct me if I wrong uh, if I'm wrong, but Leif Westerberg left uh, to fly home to Sweden, and so Oklahoma State had to had to uh, play with four players. They did, yeah. And then um, 1996 at the Honors Course, uh, Arizona State won the team championship. Tiger Woods won his the individual championship. And what I think very few people knew, but this is something that Wally Goodwin told me at the time, you know, Tiger had a big lead going in the final round and he shot 80 or 81 in the finals. The Tiger gave a junior clinic the night after the third round. And he did not get the sleep and rest and that he would normally get you know, prior to a, a tournament round of golf and Wally kind of dismissed it, but he, he, he just made mention to it in passing and it may have had an effect on how Tiger played the last day. And then you, you move into the post 2000, um, real fond memories of the 
2006 NCAAs at Sun River, which I think was your first year as head coach at Okie State, where you guys beat Florida and, and Jonathan Moore won the, the individual championship. I thought it was a great championship held on a, a wonderful venue. Um, yeah, I have fond memories of that place too, Jim. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then um, you get into the match play era, uh, obviously 2009 Inverness. Uh, Texas A&M uh, beating Arkansas. Um, but I think it was really the opening round of match play where Oklahoma State uh, was paired with Georgia and you were one and two respectively ranked in the polls, but one and eight in qualifying. And and uh, Brian Harmon beat uh, Ricky Fowler on the 18th hole. Um, and uh, Georgia moved on and the Cowboys went home, uh, crushing defeat for the Cowboys, but again, the nature of a match play. But I, I think throughout that course of that match, there was a lot of great golf played. It really was. And then, uh, I think, uh, the, the, the next couple were the NCAAs at, uh, Riviera in 2012, Texas over Alabama. Um, Thomas Peters winning the the individual battle, but, uh, that match went down to the 18th hole and, uh, uh, really exciting on the last day. What, what a venue for the NCAA's Riviera country club. Mm-hmm. Um, then I, I, my next one would be one that hits home close to you is 2014 in Prairie Dunes, uh, Alabama over Oklahoma state. And you were the, uh, JC Wells assistant coach and, at that time and uh, you were out there working hard in the last couple of matches and uh, I was watching you and but uh, some great golf coming coming down the home stretch um, by the Crimson Tide so well, I would say Robbie uh, that, Shelton and Zach Olson from Oklahoma State and Robbie Shelton from Alabama played they had 22 threes in their match and Robbie shot 63 and Zach shot 64 pretty good match Yep. Yeah, that was, that was. And the last one I think that was, uh, that was memorable for me was 2016 at, at Eugene country club, uh, Oregon over Texas. Um, I thought it was just uh, a great venue for both men and women. I liked the setup of the golf course. It forced players to think of what they were going to do off the tee. And, uh, so it was not about brute strength and, and uh, length off the tee. You you had it, it, it tested your shot making ability and your decision making. Not to take anything away from you know, two thousand seventeen, eighteen, uh and nineteen. All greats, but those are the ones that really stuck out to me when when I kind of went down memory lane. How many so. years did you attend consecutively? Did you miss a year in there anywhere? I did. I missed uh, 2003 at, at NCAAs. Uh, I got sick and I was hospitalized for a day um, the week before the championship and uh, I was grounded. So uh, it was a tough one to to meet, uh, to miss. Um, what was it? Clemson won and uh, Alejandro Canazares won the individual championship, if memory serves me correctly. That, that is correct. That is correct. Well, uh, that's pretty good uh, to go down that memory lane. Not very many people have that experience and having been to all those. So thank you for that. Um, another question for you. Uh, this spring, we, we've played some college golf this fall due to COVID. And I know you haven't been around it, but uh, I think it was done very successfully. So uh, what are you thinking about this spring? Um, and I know, you've, I know you do watch college golf nonetheless. You're still following it. So what are you hoping for this spring for college golf? I'm hoping for, for the same thing many other people are hoping. Uh, you can get back to some sense of normalcy. You guys can play the same tournament schedules uh, that you have on the books right now, if you will, or, or something similar to what you've been playing in, in years past. It, uh, you know, the GCAA and, and 
the SEC and, and Big 12 have done a nice job of um, putting together tournaments, giving players an opportunity to to play. But, you know, the ACC and Pac-12, have, have, their players have been kind of dormant. I, I looked at the field for the Azalea Amateur uh, that finished up this past weekend and did not see a lot of ACC players in the field. Um, and I think uh, it's been unfortunate uh, uh, for those players. So I, I, I hope that um, college golf can retain, re- get back to as close to a normal spring schedule as, as we've seen it in years past. Obviously, that's up to the state and local guidelines that are in place. I, I hope that, you know, spectators are, are going to be allowed to come to the events. And that's, you have, if the 500 rule is still in effect, everybody has an equal opportunity to, to, to re, re, get to regionals as they have in the past, you know, with conference championships and playing a, a full schedule. That, that, that's my hope. And obviously, um, to have a successful NCAA championship, not only Division One, but Division Two, Division Three, and, and, and NAIA. I think everybody's just, hoping to God that um, we can move back in that direction. And that, and that's my hope for you guys as well. So. Well, I, I know you won't be at those tournaments, but your, your, uh, your spirit and your memory is there for a lot of us college coaches and players. And so we, we wish you the best. But I want to ask you a couple of questions. We're going to have a speed round here to end on. So I'm going to have a bunch of questions okay. you've got to zip through. But before okay. I do that, tell everybody – you're working on your golf game again, Jim. That's I've heard that you've actually got your handicap down. You know, you're right. Rumor rumors are floating out, but you know, uh, I kind of neglected my golf game for 25, 30 years, and and uh, having retired and, and and whatnot, I've um, been able to work on my golf game, and uh, I try to play or practice three to four times a week. Um, I'm still on my same fitness routine as I had, uh, while I was working probably a little bit more rigorous, uh, now, but my handicap's down to, uh, 4.6 and, uh, I have the senior amateur in sight in the next year or two. So, um, as long as my health is good and I maintain my flexibility, I, uh, I'm going to give it a shot. So I'm pretty happy of the progress, pretty happy of the progress I've made. I'm glad the USGA change the rule on uh, double hits because I'm still capable of uh, double hitting <laughs> a chip shot. So, uh, but I'm working on that part of my game. And right. uh, so well, I'm just glad uh, you're playing again. I hope to one day join you and start playing golf a little bit more as well. So, well, before we, uh, before we finish, I want, uh, before we do the speed round, I just want to say thanks for coming and sharing, uh, certainly for sharing all that history you gave us because a lot of people, didn't know all of that, but uh, just to say, you know, just to spend an hour talking and just chatting, it's been great catching up, Jim. Well, uh, thanks for giving me this opportunity. I, I can't tell you how much, much I miss the people, you know, you coaches, the players, parents, um, NCAA, USG officials. I, I miss that daily, weekly interaction via whether it be text messages or emails or phone calls so um like i said in my email to many of you uh, i'm not going away um this whole amateur golf is part of my dna and uh, i'm going to try to get out to uh, some tournaments this spring depending on you know the rules of of the uh, respective uh, tournaments so I hope to catch up with many of you uh, this uh, this spring and and chat it up and and get caught up. So perfect. Well, we look forward to that for sure. All right, you ready for this speed round? Yes, sir. All right. Well, if you had to go back in time, would you play the tour ballada or the professional? Professional. All right. You can watch only one sporting event: New England Patriots in a Super Bowl or the Boston Red Sox in Game Seven. Patriots in Super Bowl. All right. Favorite golf course in the world that you've ever been to? I have two. I can't, I can't settle on one. Two's good. Uh, Royal Melbourne, the composite course in, uh, 
in Australia mm-hmm. where they've played the, played the president's cup in Australia open, um, and, uh, Augusta national. Oh, good. Good. Nice. All right. You and I have eaten maybe 40 meals together through the years. Um, so I'm going to ask you, Ruth's Chris or Morton Steakhouse? Morton Steakhouse. All right. Caddyshack or Sorry. Takeout? <laughs> uh, Caddyshack. Right. Day in and day out. So. Favorite tournament to watch in person? Uh, probably the Masters. Okay. Dream foursome, you and three others. Who are they? They can be dead or alive, Jim. I'm going to get sentimental here. Ron Balicki, Randy Line. And uh, yourself. Oh, wow. Gosh, you're going to bring me out of retirement to play golf with you. I love it. All right. Yeah. How many holes in one have you witnessed uh, while walking these fairways? Do you know? Uh, three. Three. All right. Uh, favorite Coach McGraw quirk? And this is your last question. Favorite quirk? Apparently, my assistant coach, Mikel, thinks I have a lot of quirks. So here you go. I don't think you have any quirks. Thank you, Jim. God, I've been waiting for somebody to answer that. Thank you so much. I, 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 no, I don't think you have any quirks. You love ice cream. Okay. You've He's made up of quirks. What do you mean, Jim? No, no, <laughs> All no, he no, is no, no, is, no. is a bunch of quirks. <laughs> well, look, if there was one quirk, and I, I don't, I, it, it would be your ability to eat fast. Okay. Well, you're not the first person okay. to mention that, so that's good. Yeah, but uh, yeah, you've, you you enjoy ice cream and and you've learned to appreciate uh, a good uh, glass of red wine. There you so. go. I love it. I love it. Well, Jim, again, this has been a pleasure. Uh, it reminded me how much we miss you, but also uh, I'm glad to hear that you might show up at some tournaments. So maybe we'll see you sometime this spring. Well, plan on it. You won't, I'm not going to give you any advance notice. I'm just going to show up and I might be in a Tommy Bahama shirt and, and shorts and flip-flops. You never know. Okay. <laughs> well, it, <laughs> it'll just be glad. It'll be good to see you. But thanks again for joining us today. And uh, maybe we'll catch up again sometime in the next year or so. No, you bet. Absolutely. 